It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies. Okay. Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Dead. Walker. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker and film lover's perspective. I'm Joe. And my name's Justin. In this episode, we'll be discussing Neil Marshall's The Descent. Our discussion will be spoiler heavy. You may find this discussion more engaging if you've seen the film before listening. Joe, how are you doing? Not the best. Okay, I'm sorry to hear that. If I could, I'm just going to talk for a moment here. The floor is yours. I watched The Descent in preparation for this episode, and I got to thinking, I'm like, man, I've never watched The Descent Part 2. Have you seen The Descent 2? I, I have not. If we ever return to Trash Cinema Month, I think that will qualify. So I got done watching The Descent last night, probably around 10 o'clock, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to watch The Descent Part 2 because I've never watched it. I've never tried. Man, there's something in the universe that was just telling me, don't do it. As of this recording, it's streaming on HBO Max. But through Amazon Prime, we had an offer of seven days of HBO Max for free. I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to pay for HBO Max because there's not much on there anymore that I would watch, and I'm already subscribed to enough streaming services. So go through that process. About 10, 15 minutes later, I'm like, all right, I'm I'm settled in. I'm going to rock out The Descent Part 2 just to see what it's all about. So using the Max app on Amazon Prime, I fire up what I believe to be The Descent Part 2. All of a sudden, the opening credits for The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants Part 2 start going. And I'm like, wait, is this one of those like Fight Club DVD things? So I started fast forwarding through it no it's legitimately the sisterhood of the traveling pants part two but it's labeled as the descent two underneath like one of the recommendations from the descent part two was the skeleton twins and it has like this image of this hand kind of like kind of reaching up with the number two carved into it and somebody kind of like spelunking down into a cave. Okay, so uh, this Bill Hader movie, I guess that's what I'm supposed to watch to to sit through The Descent Part 2. <laughs> so 90 minutes later, after I discovered that, yes, I was supposed to be watching The Skeleton Twins to watch The Descent Part 2, after 90 minutes of it, I wish I had sat through The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants instead. Man, it was tough. Last thing I'm going to say about The Descent Part 2 before we actually talk about The Descent, it was directed by The Descent's editor, John Harris. Mm -hmm. If you actually look up John Harris's directorial credits, that is the sole film that you are going to find. With all due respect to Mr. Harris, I understand why. I think you listened to the commentary as well. Did you listen to the commentary, the director crew commentary to completion? I did, yes. 
there's a moment at the end where I believe it is John Harris who asks Neil Marshall if he's got a sequel idea. And at some point, John Harris makes the joke that, you know, he has no ideas. That's why he's an editor. I thought that was funny, considering that we now know in hindsight that he would go on to direct the sequel. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad I skipped that. There are several holes in my Neil Marshall experience. I haven't seen Centurion. I had seen Doomsday back in probably like 2008, 2009, around when it first came out. I've seen Hellboy, and I remember seeing The Reckoning and turning it off. If I'm being honest and acknowledging that this is a film that I do have a soft spot for, that I do like this movie probably on par with the general consensus... Outside of this film, I don't think Neil Marshall has made a good film. I admittedly have not seen a lot of his filmography, but I did the early double feature in preparation for the episode. So I watched Dog Soldiers and I watched The Descent. I think I like Dog Soldiers better. Slightly. Very slightly. If I'm being honest, I haven't watched Dog Soldiers in some time, so that could be a situation where upon sitting down, revisiting it, Maybe I do find it to be better than this, but can we acknowledge that maybe after these two films, Dog Soldiers and The Descent, it's a lot of not good things from Neil Marshall? It's tough for me to comment because I haven't seen any of them, but his films right after this, Doomsday and Centurion have their fans, and I can't really comment because I haven't seen them, but I think maybe excluding the TV work that he did, his feature film work after that point, that people start to question what went wrong in his career. Back when I had first watched this film, I would have agreed with the consensus that this was a well-crafted film and that he was a talented genre craftsman. And he wasn't making necessarily great films, but he was making really effective films within their genre. And I think that's sort of the consensus overall with his early filmography. This viewing, my opinion, has sort of changed on that. And we'll get into some of the details as we move forward. You've obviously seen this film before, I believe many times before. What are your thoughts going into this episode on The Descent? This actually is a staple in my household, especially around Halloween time. It's a pretty regular watch. It's a film that I discovered, I want to say like around the peak of its popularity and as it sort of gained momentum early on. You know, I discovered it via DVD at the recommendation of other film friends of mine. They sold it to me as, you have to see this. I mean, they do all of this practically in like these caves and you know they only use like natural lighting and so justin's making a face right now that our listeners can't see where it's like sorry so you brought up the commentary but if you actually like scour the internet and read through people's reviews people's thoughts on the film imdb comments are highlighted even on the dvd commentary track and there is like this consensus belief that Things on this film were done in a practical manner. That is not the case. That hasn't been the case. We'll get into this later. I just want to clarify because I, I made the face. I couldn't help but make the face. I don't have an issue that it's not practical. I just have an issue at a certain point in the film. It becomes very obvious 
that it's not practical. And, and that's where my, my frustrations kind of come in on a technical level. We'll get there. Sorry, interrupted. No, no, you're fine. When I first watched it, I, I kind of did go into it with this expectation that, oh man, this is like really unique filmmaking. I recall it really did work for me. It's a film that I find certain elements of it more interesting and certain decisions um, that really worked for me. And then others that I don't want to say that the film could do without, but that, you know, I, I kind of check out for a little bit upon you know, more rewatches of it, it's like, no, it's clearly not practical. And it becomes abundantly clear at various points. With that said, I started this by indicating, you know, this is a regular viewing in my household around this time of the year. And I still like it. I kind of set that up because I think that you probably have a little bit different of a feeling. So I think it might be important for our audience to know this is a film that I'm going to be a bit more positive on than you. Yeah. And that's not the way I expected this to go. It's not the way I expected this whole month to go. Honestly, we watched Prince of Darkness. We watched The Descent, two films that I had seen in the early 2010s. Um, I, I looked back at my records. I watched the Descent on October 8th of 2011. And again, I remembered really liking it at the time. I, I thought it was, I probably would have been very positive on it. I mean, I think that this last couple episodes have been evidence that my tastes have changed. I've changed what I want and expect from movies. And maybe a little bit of my knowledge of filmmaking has changed. And that's certainly affecting how I feel about these films. But at the time, I remember it being just really effective at those genre elements, at creating a sense of claustrophobia, at creating a, a sense of tension with the filmmaking. And those are the things that would have, I assume, made me rate this film very highly at the time. Having watched it again for this episode, it, I don't feel that way anymore. There are things technically that I still like about the film. There are sequences that I think are still very effective. I just overall don't think the film works as well for me anymore. What do you think changed? You, you know, you kind of highlighted several things that it could have been, but can you point to something or identify like, I think this is what really did it for me? The number one thing, and this isn't directly the film's fault, but I think I've gotten to a place in my life where I'm cynical. No, not cynical, but you <laughs> mentioned earlier that uh, you can kind of just enjoy the film there's certain films you can enjoy and not, you know, analyze. And, and when tasked with analyzing it for a podcast, it does sort of change the film for you. I've gotten to a point in my life where it's very difficult for me to not just analyze everything I'm watching. And that's not the film's fault. But what I see when I do that is the film's fault, I guess. And I just, I think, so maybe I'm more critical of the craft behind a film, the, the technique behind a film. And I'm more critical of what I view as missteps in a screenplay as well. I'm just more critical of that stuff than I would have been 12 years ago when I first watched this. Those things stand out to me. Those things pull me out of the experience. And, and we talked about on Handmaiden that I kind of got lost in that film. And that's a situation that doesn't happen very frequently. So that's kind of what I'm referencing here. But I think it takes a really good film to get me to turn my brain off, my analytical side of my brain off in that way. And this film isn't that for me. 
I mean, I think it's worth noting, and I don't know if this has directly affected me, but I do think this is worth noting in this case, is the time in which this film came out. The years prior to the release of The Descent were a weird time in horror. It was sort of like the post-Scream landscape, but Scream was being ripped off in very sort of neutered, kind of teen-focused way. You know, it's things like, I know what you did last summer. They're slashers, but kind of in a way that wasn't sort of edgy. It wasn't sort of daring in the way that, that The Descent is. So I think it was kind of a change and kind of injected a little bit of energy into the horror landscape. So if you watch this in 2006 in the U.S., I think this was like something special to you in that in those years. You touch on how things have changed for you and the lens that you view things in. You also highlight something that I think is important and relevant that maybe we collectively could have done a better job of acknowledging as we approach the discussions for these last four horror or horror-adjacent films, this is a genre that I would say is far more subjective. It's a much wider genre than I think almost any other type of film. You think of drama, and sure, there's like various types of drama films. Comedy, you know, it kind of similarly... But you have so much more when it comes to horror. You have your typical like slasher film, like you kind of talked about. You have creature feature. And the list goes on and on. Our audience probably can pick up and identify the type of horror that maybe works for me a little bit more. And I find, you know, It Comes at Night and The Descent, while vastly different films, there are elements that work for me in that environmental horror, the surroundings where they are, you know, with It Comes at Night, it's that isolation and the unknown of what's lurking out in the woods. The Descent shares certain elements of that where you have this claustrophobic nature, you have this cave environment, this uncertainty of we don't know what is lurking in the darkness. This one does kind of work for me because of the type of horror that I'm I'm drawn to. Okay. Give me a smile. Gino, are you sure we're going the right way? I've never been lost in my life. <laughs> There's only one way out of this chamber, and that's down the pipe. Okay, Sarah, you have to calm down. I'm coming, I'm coming back, okay? Okay. Okay, move, now! Now! This is not good, guys. We get out of here. Which way? I don't know. Sarah thinks she saw someone back So what? I don't think I saw someone. I saw someone. No, you heard something and you saw what you wanted to see. It's the dark. It plays tricks on people.
batteries on our lights will run out. Very early in the film, Sarah is involved in this car accident that claims the life of her husband and daughter. Sarah reconnects with a group of her friends, kind of led by this character, Juno. Sarah, Juno, and four other women who have like a history of sort of being like, outdoorsy, kind of thrill-seekers. They go spelunking in this cave system. The thought and the belief is it's supposed to be this touristy kind of cavern. It's later revealed that it's never been explored. The group of women go through this cave system, the claustrophobic nature. There's this element of darkness. Eventually, the women encounter these creatures that are blind. They hunt by sound. All hell breaks loose. People die. There's a big reveal that Juno was having an affair with Sarah's now deceased husband. Following this altercation with Juno, the film does kind of leave a somewhat ambiguous ending, and there's a few different variations that I think I'm just going to leave it there for now because we'll kind of talk about the different endings and what maybe worked. And I always wanted to do a a horror film set in a cave. It's the, it's the classic environment. And it, it, you know, horror films are best set in the dark and you can't get any more dark than this. What it is about is a descent into madness and a physical descent into the depths of the earth. Justin. Yeah. As I was kind of talking about what happened in the film, I referenced the affair between Juno and Sarah's dead husband. And, and you gave a look. It's the episode of looks, apparently. I'm I'm sorry, I can't hide it sometimes. I was a little surprised that you said it was a reveal. At some point, it's revealed that Juno had an affair with Sarah's husband, just because it is so obvious. The opening sequence, the cold open, which we do see the death of Sarah's family. There's also an interaction with Sarah's husband. His name's... Paul. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. After Sarah finds the necklace, Beth says Paul gave it to her. So clearly we're supposed to know who Paul is, although that line bothers me because it's so unnecessary. Um, we'll get back to that because I think that moment in the story doesn't quite work for me. I don't think there's anything wrong with it inherently. I just think the way it's depicted, the way it's directed, could have used a little more finesse, a little bit more work. If I could just respond to something real quick. I used the term revealed, and I should have provided context that it's revealed to Sarah. Okay. Just to be fair about it, because it is, I think, one of the most overt things that happens in the movie, where it's honestly like the first thing that you pick up on. And I don't think it does a bad job of setting up that idea, planting those seeds, to sort of come back later. You had said at some point between messages between the two of us that you do think that this is a slight step above Prince of Darkness only because of the characterizations and and maybe that there's a central character with, I guess, some sort of journey that she's on. So because you say that, do you think that the script is, is worth sort of 
taking into consideration when talking about whether this movie is successful or not. I ask that because just to kind of give a little bit more detail about what I'm thinking is, if for me this film was on a craft level just so successful, like it's just just hitting on every level and it's working on every level, I would be less critical of script issues. But because I don't think it is, I may be a little bit more critical of the script. Do you think that the script is something that is even worth discussing with this type of film? Yeah, I, I think it is. Because even though it's a genre film, or just because it's quote-unquote a genre film, the foundation starts here. Now, this is probably going to be unfair. I acknowledge that there are certain story things that maybe don't work or don't work as well. And I also think it's probably unfair because you haven't seen the follow-up to this, but it feels night and day from a storytelling and script perspective. I'm curious, like, like what is this question rooted in, or where are you hoping to go with this one? I have several things that I think hold this script back from really working. I didn't know if you were going to come from the perspective that, like, that stuff doesn't really matter as much because it's about the claustrophobia, about the suspense of the situation inside the cave. Well, I think those are elements, but I don't necessarily feel like that's all that it is or all that it should be either. I will acknowledge that in some situations, the horror movie is just escape from the killer. And that's fine. Like, I I can get behind that. There's more to this one. Yeah, so I, I think that it is valid. Can I ask a question to you? Yeah. Okay. It's maybe not necessarily fair, and it's not an argument of which is the better film, because I, I think there's a lot to take into consideration and context here. But we both picked a quote-unquote horror or more traditional horror film, which story, story in general, worked better, this or Prince of Darkness for you? This worked better on a story level. I think the thing I was most critical of with Prince of Darkness was the script and was the story. I didn't think even sort of taking the issues with the script and, and kind of separating that from the story it was trying to tell, I'm not sure I really thought that there was a compelling, interesting story at the core of that film. This, I do think there is something compelling here. At its core, this film, The Descent, is sort of the classic scenario, the classic story of a woman overcoming trauma or overcoming grief through the the events of the film. It's this idea that the main character is put into this difficult or traumatic experience as a way to process or overcome the trauma. So it's like overcoming trauma through trauma, or it's a character taking back control of their life and overcoming this thing that's holding them back by the struggles the the events of the film that's a common sort of story type i think sp especially in horror but this film does something somewhat interesting with it to sort of elevate that a little bit is that the cave and going deep into darkness and then her trying to escape that or, or climb out of that is a metaphor that adds to that story and i think there's a moment in the very beginning of the film it's during the cold open which she wakes up at the hospital after the accident and she's having i guess essentially like a nightmare sequence and she's running down the hallway and the lights are turning off as she's running and she's just trying to stay ahead of these lights as they continue to turn off 
I think that sets up this idea of her trying to run away from darkness or escape darkness. And then that being sort of ultimately what this story is, is her trying to climb out of this darkness, which is her grief after the loss of her family. You know, if she can escape, you know, we'll talk about what the endings are, but if she can escape, if she does escape, it's it's her having overcome those things, her on the other side being in a better place because of this experience. But if she's stuck in there, it was this inability to escape this past, this darkness. And then if you want to add the creatures in, I do think it is, her goal is to escape the darkness. What are the things at this point that are keeping her from doing that, the creatures represent those obstacles, those sort of demons she needs to defeat to claw her way out of this this grief, this trauma that she had experienced. I don't know if that's always entirely successful, but I think that's essentially what's at the core of the story, and it is what makes it more compelling than whatever Prince of Darkness is trying to do. So we've alluded to and touched on the different endings, and there's the false hope ending where Sarah gets out of the cave, or at least you're made to believe that she gets out of the cave. She climbs towards the light, gets out, gets back to the vehicle, drives away. But then, you know, it was basically like a dream sequence, and she wakes up basically back in the cave after seeing this like ghost version of Juno. But um, I knew how it was going to end from the start in terms of her being trapped in the cave. Um, partly because it was, there was, when we were writing it, the script had a different title. It was called The Dark, but it was to do with the idea of, of her being kind of absorbed or swallowed up or being at one with the dark at the end of the film, that the darkness would finally claim her. So that is the original UK cut. And here in the US, it's now, I guess, labeled like the unrated cut. One of the reasons why I do like this ending is it communicates this thing of the false hope and this belief of you're able to get out of your grief, but it still pulls you back in. Even though that sometimes you believe that this grief can be overcome, there may be times or there may be things that that kind of force you back. And the ghostly Juno and the understanding, the realization of the betrayal of her husband, that's that trigger that sends her back into that darkness. And, and for me, that's why this particular ending works, because as you highlighted, it's about this and it's about her trying to get out. But for me, this ending kind of lands a little bit better because of sort of a more realistic approach. I do think that that is an interpretation that I agree with for that ending. This is a sort of a an allegory for that struggle with grief. But if you want to actually depict it in a way that is more realistic or adjacent to reality, that's an element that makes sense. That's an element that works. But I actually think the other ending's more interesting because in a less realistic way, but I think it's interesting because she escapes, implying that she has in some way taken back control of her life. She's overcome the obstacles that are, you know, preventing her from living her life. She's found a way to like keep going on, but then it's immediately replaced by something else. She's overcome the loss of her family, but because of what happened down in the cave, it's immediately replaced by in this case, I guess, guilt for leaving Juno behind. 
the vision of dead Juno representing the survivor's remorse or even specifically kind of like the guilt leaving her to die. Now she's living with some new sort of obstacle, some new trauma. So essentially being overcoming something and it immediately being replaced by something else. I just think that's more interesting. But um, when I was editing the film um, and we were having difficulty just getting the 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 um the the long form ending uh right um i said you know at one point i was in frustration like i said well, why don't we just cut it here let's see how that works that's in the us with with the uk ending and it scored pretty high it was scored like in the 75s around that kind of area and then we tested it with the with the short rending and it tested up in the 80s uh, following on from the test screenings and the test results certainly lionsgate were happier to go with the short rending because that had uh, tested better and, I, and 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 that was it that's what it boiled down to what i said earlier which is that physically she makes it out of the cave because that was as written never intended to be the ending um i couldn't really say what i intended people to take from it because you know, i just kind of you know you cut the film short and suddenly um it opens up a whole new ballpark as a you know, uh, some people don't even recognize that it's Juno in the car with her. Some people might assume that she's still alive. Some people might assume that she's a ghost. And, you know, any one of these things just is, is like, what does it mean? What's, what words this take the story? And, you know, and th then it cuts. So you're left with that hanging. Like you said, I mean, I think if you want to depict a more realistic representation of grief and living with grief, the other ending is maybe a more fulfilling version i personally prefer the the longer version the, the uk ending um i like what that says um about the character is the payoff as well as far as um the sort of flashbacks and the visions that she's been having throughout the the, the story with her daughter and the birthday cake and all that kind of stuff because uh, she was due to celebrate her daughter's birthday before just before she died and um and and that leaves her in a certain place where in her own mind she's with her daughter and therefore, that's the only kind of sense of happiness that she might ever find again. But outwardly, she's clearly gone insane, which is that just that concept of like, what is what is a true happy ending? Where if the character in their own mind is happy, then is that a happy ending regardless of their physical circumstances? I have a couple of things that I, I really just sort of want to touch on surrounding this. And I, you know, you did a nice job covering this ending, basically the American ending, we'll call it. I think there's maybe a feeling that it's like a happier ending. You know, we as Americans, we need our happy, open and shut, unambiguous endings. And I don't think that this is that. If I think I've seen it referred to that. I think it's equally bleak, but just in a different way. Yeah. You know, in the commentary track, there was discussion and almost like the sense of disappointment regarding the test screening feedback regarding the ending. I think why I don't feel maybe as satisfied with the ending that you prefer. It's going to kind of address like an earlier point that you make about how this film is about like overcoming this like grief trauma. I didn't see enough of Sarah outside of that grief and honestly, maybe even in the grief to actually make the ending that you prefer to make that one work for me. Really, Sarah's whole identity in this film is this loss, this grief, this trauma that she resides in. I think it's actually one of the things that maybe I, I don't love about the story. We see the traumatic event. We see kind of that, that hallway sequence that you highlighted where she's running away from the darkness. But the next time we're 
basically picking up and, and interacting with Sarah is this scenario where she's connecting with her friends again. We're made to believe that there's been like a year or so passage of time. I think that there's moments that depict her being uncomfortable or unsettled, but I, I, I didn't see what is Sarah's life in this year that really gave me a sense that she's she's struggling to overcome this. I think that the film sort of expects us to just accept the loss of her husband and the loss of her child, and that event is all we need to know to accept that, okay, she's she's going through trauma. But we don't know who Sarah is. You know, that's kind of part two of why maybe I prefer this maybe a little bit bleaker real ending because it's all we know of her is traumatized Sarah. I agree on that point, And that's one of my issues with the script. And I want to elaborate on that a little bit more as we go forward. But I think that's an issue with either ending personally. I think that for me, it's just, I buy the ending that I do because Sarah's character doesn't feel like anything other than this epitome of grief, it would make sense to me that this is where she stays, because that's the only way that I've seen or known her. You know, for the other ending, I don't know enough about her. I don't know what that life is like or what that existence is like to sort of say, yes, she is capable of something other than this grief. I just prepared what I thought the, the journey of the character was going to be, and it's quite dramatic, the change she goes through. It's, it's almost a full, it's not really a full circle, it's more of a spiral. We don't really know much about what the grief looks like either. It's represented the same way the ghost vision of Juno is represented at the end, which is maybe why I, that ending resonates with me a little bit more, is because how do we depict Sarah's grief in this film? When she's talking to her friends, there's two moments of performance. One, it's like the moment where they bring out the photograph of Sarah, Juno, and Beth, the three friends from the beginning. And she has this moment where she's she says, love every moment. Love each day. It's just something Paul used to say. We rely on the performance of the actor to sell this moment of grief for the loss of her husband. Then another character mentions, I want to have many kids when I'm older. Oh, but when I'm older, I want to have lots of babies. And then we cut to a close-up of Sarah, rely on the performance to sell this idea that she's grieving for the loss of her child. And then other than that, how is it depicted? It's depicted through these nightmare moments. It's the the jump scare moments, or it's like her daughter with the cake, these very surreal, not literal moments. And then that's what we see with Juno at the end as well. So I kind of think they're kind of working on the same level. Maybe that's what helps me feel the way I feel about that ending. But I mean, I think your point is absolutely correct. I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with anything you've said. You touched on those two little like performance moments. And if I'm being honest, like I like those moments. I think that those are maybe honestly like the best character moments of the entire film. On one hand, maybe I'm a little disappointed by that because everything is just so in and out, we're not really given much time to develop any of these characters other than, you know, verbalizing what's happening to them or some sort of exposition or 
screaming in terror. You know, I, I like some of that stuff that's happening in the cabin where we are kind of laying the foundation of the relationship or the relationships. I just, I think I like the idea of what those scenes are trying to accomplish. But ultimately, I don't think that they necessarily land because by the time we enter the cave, outside of Sarah and Juno and and I guess Beth, Beth's whole identity is Sarah's friend. Yeah. But outside of that, we don't have a lot of character here. So I think the only two characters that are really given anything are Sarah and Juno, and then everyone else is kind of just there to be expendable, to be the fodder. But I think what the film does do well is that even though they're not given much in characterization, those scenes at the beginning in the cabin before they set out on their voyage, they at least accomplish giving them personalities to relate this back to Prince of Darkness. I mean, those characters are just like pieces of wood, they're cardboard cutouts. Do I necessarily know anything about the characters in The Descent? I don't, but I think it's good that we see that they can goof around with each other and they can just be normal people and they have sort of personalities. And I think that works well. I do wish there was more in terms of actual characterization, but I think it is at least successful in giving them personalities. I remember him saying that he wasn't interested in us playing one-dimensional characters. The horror, it's very easy to do that because, you know, horror can easily be very uh, rely heavily on on a formula and he really allowed us to you know flesh these characters out give them lots of different levels i know we talked about this on the prince of darkness episode but i think about this and this is just like the immediate like cliche thing and i don't think we necessarily need more than cliche but some of that like arriving or planning where maybe we see Juno and Holly, they're kind of figuring out this trip, and we see Sarah being like hesitant, you know, something, just like something before we're arriving. This is the issue, and I've categorized it as this economical approach, stopping any sort of character development or story development to really happen. They talked about in the commentary that they liked that they took so long drawing out that cave exploration before they got to the creatures and sort of that slow build and, and taking their time with that. I wish they had taken time with that first act to set the stage, to develop the characters. And this is what I see as the main problem with the script is that they're so eager to just to get the story going. They're so eager to get into the cave that they ignore these, I think, fundamental things. This is not the only way to do it, but the thing that I think would have helped is we have to find some way to develop Sarah's trauma or her grief. And the easiest way to do this is that there's some resistance from Sarah to go on this, this trip. And so Juno comes to Sarah and Juno has to convince Sarah to do this and, and talking about maybe like this is going to be good for you and Sarah doesn't want to go and she needs to be convinced to go for some reason. And then that would also, I think, in a way develop Juno because it would develop what Juno's motivations are. You know, if it's Juno functioning from guilt and she wants to rekindle this relationship out of some I guess, obligation of guilt, or she just wants to help her out of guilt, you know, we would get that from that. And I also think that that would then make this moment in which 
Juno betrays everyone, this moment where Juno doesn't tell them that they're not in the cave that they think they are, this lie that Juno's been telling, it would make that more impactful too. Because it's like Juno came to Sarah. Juno said everything she needed to say to Sarah just to get her to come on this trip. And then you find out everything she was saying was a lie. That would just be another sort of- Another betrayal. And I just think taking your time to develop that. So here's what happens in the film. Beth and Sarah are driving to the cabin. And there's a moment where Beth looks at Sarah and Sarah is visibly sort of not entirely present. She's still dealing with this grief. And Beth says, you know, we don't have to go. Listen, we don't have to do this, you know. We can head back and stay in town. Get wasted, go to a barn dance. <laughs> no, that is frightening. <laughs> You're right, we don't have to do this. But I'm not going to be the one to tell Juno. And then that's the end of it. There's no sort of discussion. And from that line, I don't even get a sense of how those two characters fall on this side of the argument. Like, do they really want to go? Do they not want to go? What is really going on here? You could also use this whole scenario of trying to convince Sarah to distinguish Beth and Juno as well. Because, you know, you could see maybe the way Beth is actually on Sarah's side. She actually cares about Sarah. And we can see maybe the way Juno is manipulating her for her own benefit. To kind of spin off of there too, we talked about this during the After Sun episode where we kind of appreciated that film because of what takes place between scenes. You've talked about elliptical editing in the past. Now, just to be clear, that's not benefiting this film or this situation at all. We need these things. We we need those scenes to exist because otherwise, like, the film sort of just expects you to accept, okay, this is now happening and it's happening because we need to get these people here. You know, I kind of want to highlight like something that you talked about there where like showing like the dynamic, especially between Juno, Sarah and Beth to a lesser extent, it could be something as, as simple as Juno goes to Sarah and we find Sarah is actually living with Beth because Sarah just couldn't go home. She couldn't go back to the house um, that she shared with Paul and their daughter. To me, it's like, okay, something like that. We've established where Sarah is at. She can't go back to that house. That was her existence. This is where it is now. You establish Beth as that nurturing, compassionate person who is willing to take in her best friend after this. And then Juno arrives to throw everything off and, you know, force the issue, force Sarah out of her comfort zone. And, you know, you touched on doing it out of guilt. Or I always like the idea of the helper who's not really helping anything. I could definitely see Juno being that, where she has that good intention from her perspective, but it's actually really selfish and self-centered. And I think it can be both with Juno. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you said it right, is that we need to see these things. The film takes shortcuts and expects us to fill in the gaps because it's eager to get on to the quote-unquote more exciting stuff. But I mean, if you really want the story to be about a character struggling with, with whatever they're struggling with, it doesn't have to be specific about this film. You need to spend the time setting these things up 
but I wanted to go back to something else you said. I mean, you said show the planning. There's that other character, the experienced climber, the one that sort of comes to the conclusion that they're in the wrong cave. Yeah, that's how it's supposed to work, except I put in a flight plan for Borum Caverns, and this isn't Borum Caverns, is it, Juno? We're in the wrong fucking cave! The one who seems to be the most experienced. You know, she has moments where she's like, well, there's this isn't how I envisioned it from the book. You know, clearly she was familiar with the cave that they were supposed to be in. So you could have had a scene in which Juno and her are, like you said, sort of planning this trip, where they're going to go, how they're going to do it, making sure they have the necessary equipment. It does seem like something that's, you know, you can cut out because it's not the most exciting and also we can fill in that blank. But when you give us nothing else, like that's a good way to establish that character dynamic, establish a little bit more about those characters. Slight defense of the film here. And I will acknowledge, I don't think that it's necessarily done well, because I, I feel like it's done more as a setup and payoff rather than any form of like true character development. I believe it's that same character that you're talking about as they're walking and like hiking to the cave entrance she's talking about like all the different things that they might experience and feel don't go wandering off when you think it's dark when you turn out the lights well down there it's pitch black you can get dehydration disorientation claustrophobia panic attacks paranoia hallucinations Albeit very minor, and I don't think in that moment the intention is to sort of set up or develop who this person is. But I think stuff like that, where maybe that discussion is happening and being used to demonstrate who they are earlier um, when they're in the cabin or even before they've like ventured out... I also just think we're talking about sort of setting up the trauma itself or the grief itself. I think the accident and the way that unfolds could have been beefed up a little bit. Here's a possibility. You just have Sarah being the driver. You have maybe... So what happens in the film? They get in the car. They're driving. Their daughter's in the back seat. Sarah's having a kind of a conversation with their daughter. She then turns to Paul, her husband, and... Basically, he's like, what's wrong? You're a little distant. And he's like, oh, it's nothing. Are you okay? You seem a bit distant. I'm fine. And then they, they crash. What if it was something in which maybe Sarah was suspicious that Paul was having an affair or it could be something else, but let's just go with this. And that resulted in like a verbal argument in the car. Sarah is driving. And so this argument sort of breaks out. And through sort of the, the commotion of this argument, she sort of veers out of her lane and they crash. And then she is the lone survivor. And so then it's like a survivor's guilt. But then it's also like a guilt that like the last conversation she had with her husband is like this fight. The last time she saw her daughter, she was engaged in this fight in front of her daughter. It adds maybe another layer to what is going on with her rather than, I mean, I know losing your entire family is an, enough theoretically, 
But I, I just think you could have developed that more and you could also have worked in the portrayal from Juno into this a little bit more. It really is just the way it's depicted. I mean, they, they say nothing in the car and he just veers off the road because he's not looking at the road. It's just, it just feels very clumsy the way that's directed as well. The issue is like if their relationship has gotten to this place where they just don't communicate, I just don't see why he would turn and look at her like that long enough. He would keep his eyes anywhere but on her, but he turns to her and stares at her long enough to crash into another car. It feels very contrived. It's like we need to have a car crash here, so how are we going to do it? He's going to take his eyes off the road long enough to crash into a into the other car. It doesn't happen organically. It's just, this needs to happen, so this happens. The one thing that I would make a case for a little bit more is the argument thing. We've seen that. We we see that all the time. There is something that I really like about that car ride where there's just like this coldness and this distance um, between Paul and Sarah. And for me, I actually really like how that piece of it is depicted because to me, it communicated where their relationship actually was. I think it says something if characters or individuals aren't necessarily fighting and there is this distance and this coldness that we get in that car ride that's communicating where this relationship is. I think that's the only area that I, I kind of disagree with you on. And I would probably use that car ride as maybe establishing that relationship and, and that dynamic before ultimately um, Paul and their daughter are, are dispatched. Maybe Sarah's not there when it happens. And that's like that kind of a piece of that guilt that she can carry on. Like, hey, I wasn't there for them. I wasn't there when it happened. It should have been me. I should have been there with them. You know, so something of that nature. But for me, it's just the coldness of the relationship in that car that works. And I agree with you. The distance, the coldness, that is more interesting but I'm trying to maybe find a solution that fixes that crash for me because I just don't think it works. I mean, I like the shot where we see it coming, but the characters don't. I like the shot, but I just don't think it works. As much as the solution that I'm suggesting isn't the most interesting, I do think that's kind of what I'm trying to fix. And yeah, there's different ways. There's probably better ways. This is the way I came up with. We're coming up with this on the fly, so... Yeah, so like you said, if she's not there, the guilt that she wasn't there, honestly, if we don't see it at all, that's better than I think what we get in the film. There's other ways just to add a little bit more to what she's going through other than just the loss. I think in a film, you need to kind of really develop this, and I think adding just another layer would develop it more. Agreed. I mean, th the problem that we experience here is we don't know enough about Sarah to really empathize with her outside of this experience and that's all it is yeah and i think you were kind of suggesting that maybe the fact that that crash happens so early that we don't get their life or the relationship between her and paul before the crash is maybe a problem too i agree with that i mean i know they kind of wanted to start the film off with a bang really kind of remind everybody that this is a horror film give them a little gore give them a shock but i think maybe even just 
something between the characters before that big event would have helped too. There's a film that we're going to talk about coming up on a future episode that starts just with a car crash. And um, oh, I well. guess I'm, I'm wondering here because it kind of works in that film. And in this one, it, it doesn't. So... Yes, I know what film you're talking about. We will reference this film in that episode, and we will compare them. And it's it's going to be the dumbest fucking comparison. <laughs> it might be a good learning exercise to see why one works and one doesn't. Stay tuned for that. <laughs> Can I just make an admission here, Justin, that's going to totally blow my credibility? I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, and I know I've watched it many times while paying close attention. This was the first time watching this film that I noticed Juno's necklace and the wording on it. I don't know how I've gotten through life watching The Descent so many times and this not even registering or triggering anything for me. You just destroyed one of my arguments. One of my arguments was going to be, we set it up, Sarah says, love every moment, cut to the shot of the necklace engraved with love every moment. It is love every moment, right? Love each day. Oh, God. We set up this idea where Sarah says, oh, my husband had this expression, love each day. And then later when we cut to Sarah holding Juno's necklace, we see it engraved with love each day. And my argument was going to be, we set it up, we pay it off, we do it visually. This necklace is from Paul, Sarah's husband, and now Sarah is aware of it and now aware of the affair and that we don't need anything else. But then the film gives us this line of dialogue of, oh, it's from Paul. And I just feel like the only thing worse than a film telling you something is a film telling you something after they've already shown you that thing but now you're saying that you didn't even notice an element of this maybe it is important for the audience to be given more to connect the dots i don't know i don't think that you're necessarily wrong this is not a film that has much in the way of subtlety it's a film that really is in your face about its messaging and what's happening. The most subtle thing that I would highlight that occurs in the film early is sort of this moment where Paul is like helping Juno to shore. And just what takes place in, in that scene, to me, communicated everything I needed to know and sort of understand about that relationship. And I was able to draw my own assumptions and conclusions based off of what happens there. I didn't need, and maybe this is why like, it just whether it didn't register or maybe it's just I didn't care about the necklace. I already I already knew what everybody but Sarah knew. On a story level, this is the moment, this is the second biggest moment for Sarah. The first moment is the actual loss of her family. And then this moment here where she discovers that her husband was having an affair with one of her friends. So it's a a betrayal from her husband, a betrayal from her friend. That needs to really impact that character. That should be a, a huge moment. And I just don't think the way it's executed feels right to me. It doesn't feel big enough. It doesn't feel like it it hits the way it needs to hit. And I think part of that comes from the way she finds the necklace. It's the fact that she stumbles across 
Beth, who's dying, and then Beth hands her the necklace, or she gets the necklace from Beth, and then Beth sort of explains to her what it is. It just feels like a not the most impactful way to handle that. I, I wonder if it would have worked better if she had somehow seen the engraving while Juno was wearing it. Some interaction with Juno reveals the the actual necklace rather than this what feels sort of forced you know because it's like beth rips it off of her when she gets stabbed and then we we obviously know it's going to come back it's going to mean something it feels like it's too many coincidences and maybe it would have been more impactful if it happened sort of firsthand with juno this is an area that i i am going to disagree with you to an extent I think Sarah finding Beth and Beth dying and sort of the exchange, that part, I would agree. I feel like that just feels like exposition and kind of telling us and sort of beating us over the head. I actually like Juno's accidental kill of Beth in a movie that I don't think has a lot of like surprises or sort of like jump scare kind of moments. I think it executes that one well. Beth grabbing the necklace or, you know, kind of trying to grab hold of Juno and getting the necklace. Like, I, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, maybe it's it's a little cliche. I'm really okay with these things. I would have rather had Sarah find Beth. Beth's already dead. You know, Sarah can kind of draw her own conclusions without being spelled out for her. I think that it's just a little bit of a different approach to it. In that moment, Sarah's big thing for me, what I think should be happening is Sarah should be negatively impacted by Beth's death, not the betrayal of her husband. If Beth having the necklace is just about revealing to Sarah that Juno killed Beth and that's it, I agree with you. But it being a way to reveal both that Juno killed Beth or injured her and left her for dead and also that she was having an affair with her husband that feels like too much for that one moment because i feel like it takes a little bit of the impact off of one or the other so yeah i'm in agreement with you that finding beth already dead holding the necklace being a way for sarah to know that juno killed her is a great way to do it i guess my maybe my issue is that the film wants to in a similar way i was saying earlier the film wants to be economical in its necessary plot points here it feels like it wants to cover two big impactful moments for sarah at once to get them over quickly i just feel like that's actually a negative i feel like those things need their own time their own uh space to kind of develop and directly affect sarah i don't have a great solution for that one but it, i do think it is not quite working on the way i think it should i know that we've talked about some of those like filmmaking tropes or cliche things but i mean let's be honest the rule of three is something that occurs quite frequently the way that i would try to approach this is juno's betrayals because we already have the Juno betrayal of getting them into the situation lying to them about the cave we have the Juno betrayal of accidentally killing Beth and then the Juno betrayal of she was having an affair with Sarah's husband. While the film does it and it doesn't in kind of in the rule of three, two of the three just are so compacted that it doesn't even feel like three. It really just does feel like two. 
I just want to say something positive about the script. While I think these elements maybe at times are cliche and maybe sometimes aren't necessarily developed as well as they could be, I do think the script is good at setting up little details that will come back later. I think of the idea of love each day, the watch, the beeping watch. You know, she can't figure out this watch and then it obviously goes off alerting their presence to the creatures. I think even like Juno leaving the guidebook behind, putting it in the car before they they take off. If I could actually just touch on that moment too. So again, highlighted the lack of subtlety within the film. That was just to me a really good moment that communicated everything I needed to know about sort of what was going to happen and and where they were and the, and the situational element. We didn't need like dialogue heavy like conversations or like we didn't need Juno like scheming or planning with anybody else. It was just, okay, we see her basically discard this guidebook. We knew something was up because of that. If I can just say one thing regarding the subtlety of that specific moment, though, I do wish there wasn't such a like a telegraphing in the performance. Um, It would have been nice if it was just like, okay, put this in here and we can even get a close up of the book, but just sort of the look where she's almost like seeing if anyone's watching her before she, it's a bit much, but at the same time, I think the moment, the the idea behind it is sound. It could have been tightened up a little bit. I bring it up because I think it is, the script is doing a good job setting these things up and then paying them off later on. That's my positive thing about the script. Do you want to talk about the creatures? Well, um, I think we need to, but I I think that we need to acknowledge the elephant in the room. There's really, I would say, two different perspectives on the creatures. You're either team creature, where you're pro-creature, you believe that they add something to the uh, film, or you're maybe a little bit on my side where maybe you're a little bit, I don't want to say anti-creature, but you think that maybe this film works pretty well without them. I'm on the side that the film works better without them. I mean, it works better in the moments without them. And then I also think that there's just too much of them when they do show up. Monster movies or creature features, those types of things. You can have one creature terrorizing a group of people, or you can have a horde of creatures terrorizing a group of people. I always think the one creature is more interesting. I think maybe that could have been done here. Like maybe there's one of them or two of them, whatever, but there's so many of them. And then they just, they show so much of them. Uh, We'll get to lighting later, but I think if they had just hidden them a little bit more and showed maybe less of them, that would have been more effective than what we get to. We're mostly aligned on this one. The moments for me that the creatures really, really work are those moments where we don't see them in full, we see them lurking. There's like this shadow kind of right on the edge of the frame, and it kind of like slinks down and into kind of like a squat. I really liked that moment. I thought that worked really, really well. You get that sense of there's this other danger here. And those moments where they're on the edge of the frame or they're kind of lurking in the shadow, those are done well. The moment that I almost, I'm just like, okay, is the reveal when there's like the infrared camera and it's the jump scare moment where the creature is standing right next to them. Then there's like the chaos that ensues. 
I just think about that moment. I think that's the turning point. The turning point from we're going to attempt to light this film resembling practical lights. We're going to use shadow and darkness and, and essentially like inky blackness, this really deep, dark black to hide things and the light to reveal things. You know, it's like a director in control of what he's showing you and what he's not showing you. And in that moment, it switches for me to we want to show you all these cool creatures and these cool action sequences. And it's like, we want you to see it all. And I think that's a big problem. Imagine that exact moment you're describing in which it was lit by someone's headlamp and the person turns their head and you catch just a glimpse of the side of the face of this creature behind her rather than the infrared. You see the full thing, flat lighting, you see it all and you get maybe just the edge of it or something just barely illuminated by this headlamp that's turning. I mean, I think that would actually be scarier. And there's moments later on too, when they're finally running from these creatures and they're carrying Holly, who's, you know, who's injured. They're going through this one path and then basically they run into one of the creatures who then sort of like screams at them. Like how much more interesting would it have been if they're walking through this darkness and then one of their lights just picks up one of these creatures right there in front of them. But what really happens is we cut to the scene in which there's all this ambient lighting now all of a sudden in this cave in which we can already see the creature. I'm in complete agreement. I think as soon as we see the creature in its entirety, for me, it it starts to lose a bit of its luster. Respectfully, I think that they do a pretty good job with, with the look of the creatures. I don't actually have any complaints with their design or like the makeup of them. I, I think they look good. They just get to a point where they're a little overexposed. So, you know, those flashes of light where we just get like bits and pieces of it, and then maybe if you want the entire creature, you see one at the end. I don't even know that you necessarily need that because what you don't know and what you don't see is scarier, I think, to the human mind. Do you remember the movie Cloverfield? Yeah. I'm a sucker for like the found footage aesthetic if they commit but they never fucking commit. This film does not commit to its aesthetic. Go ahead, sorry. So one of the things that I really liked about Cloverfield, in addition to the found footage element, which I am a sucker for, and I am far more forgiving to the commitment than you, <laughs> the chaos of like seeing that creature. And I know it's like different because it's that larger scale, but when there is that interaction, you're only getting like those brief bits and pieces. So to me, the creature just is better because we don't have the full sense of it. So similarly here, I think that's the approach that I would have looked to take with this. During the commentary, they talked about like when the creatures become a big part of this film, they wanted to be sort of relentless, sort of like nonstop, just kind of moving, moving, moving. And I think talked about this idea that like typically in horror films, you'll have a death, then you'll have like a sort of a, a lull, sort of like peaks and plateaus. Here they wanted like death after death, like maybe two deaths right in a row as an example, just to like be sort of unrelentless in terms of how they're depicting this kind of stuff. And this is maybe somewhat cliche too, but I think it would have been more effective is if you do want to show your creature, wait for your climax. 
eliminate these action set pieces where they're fighting, Juno's fighting a creature, Sarah's fighting a creature, save it for your climax in which Sarah finally faces off with one creature and that be your big climax, I think that would be more effective if you want to show your creature. So you're hinting at this creature, you're giving little bits and pieces, and then at the end, she has to defeat the creature. I feel like there's just this convenience where they know that these creatures are blind and that they're tracking by sound. Logically speaking, based off of certain behaviors that we see, I guess that makes sense, but it feels like the characters know an awful lot about these creatures, their habits and behaviors, after having just experienced them for the first time. I also feel like there's almost elements of convenience where the sound is the thing that triggers them to attack. And there's a few moments where I'm like, we might be stretching it a little bit. That's the problem. I think you have to not think about it to enjoy it. Because if you give it any thought at all, I think it falls apart completely. Like, there's no way a creature that's evolved to live in those caves cannot sense and hear a human that they're face to face with. They would hear their breathing, kind of have to just kind of let that stuff go. But the problem is the film then wants to describe it and explain it. And that gets in the way. I think if the film eliminated all that exposition and maybe even just shown the creatures less, you'd navigate around that issue. I mean, the scene where they're like, tell us what we're fighting. They're totally blind. And judging from what we've seen, I'd say they use sound to hunt with, like a bat. And they've evolved perfectly to live down here in the dark. In the commentary, I think it was Neil Marshall said he at one point had the cave that, that, that these were cavemen that had evolved. How would a character know that? From their limited experience with these creatures, she can tell that these are cavemen who have evolved. He made the smart decision to cut that out. You know, and you know how I feel about exposition that I don't think is necessary. This is exposition I feel like is not necessary. It just grinds the film to a halt for no real benefit. If you're going to have these creatures living underground, what would they be? Where would they come from? And elements came into the story of like finding a cave painting as if it was you know prehistoric cave painting. And I thought, well, okay, so cavemen, what if they were cavemen? And what if they were actually more human? Because to me, making them more human makes them more scary. I didn't need any of that dialogue. I'm for reasoning. I'm for justification. I'm for understanding. But there are certain things that I'm like, you know what? These are what they are. I'm willing to accept that these are basically their rules. These are how they function. And I think that the film could have been smarter with some of that. You brought up creatures like that that have evolved should be able to hear a person breathing. And I'm like, yeah, that honestly makes it more interesting. And yeah, it complicates things. You'd think smell would be a heightened sense as well. I mean, and these things don't smell or hear these humans. Yeah, especially if you limit the number of creatures to one or two that are just like hunting this group or accidentally found this group. It becomes a little bit more terrifying that it's hunting by sound, but it can hear me breathing. It can hear like the beating of my heart. It's because he wanted that image. He wanted the 
creature human face to face, but the creature just doesn't know they're there. It's almost like working backwards from that to get to the mythology of the creatures. And then also these moments like the watch going off or someone yelling as a way to all of a sudden get the creature's attention or for the creature to attack. I think it's almost like working backwards from these big events you want to accomplish. I'm concerned that I'm coming across more negative towards this film than... Yeah, I've turned you negative. Here's the thing, though, and I bring this up because you just highlighted something that outside of this discussion for the podcast, I am going to, the next time I watch this, turn a blind eye to these gaps or flaws in in the logic. Because, again, acknowledging we can look at things differently, I can turn that off. I can turn a blind eye to this. And I enjoy this movie so much that I'm like, yeah, you know, that doesn't make sense. That's flawed logic. I can deal with it and I can, you know, still have a good time with it. I feel like I'm influencing the discussion to be maybe more negative, but I'm happy that you get enjoyment out of this. I just don't feel quite the same way. Would you agree that claustrophobic is a common way that people describe this film? Because I was surprised this go around for me that there was only one sequence that really was like, oh, this is claustrophobic and everything else. I didn't quite get that feeling. And that was not what I expected because when I, in my mind, thought back, I was like, oh yeah, the first half of the film before the creatures show up, all of it is just very claustrophobic. And I didn't feel that this time around. I felt it during one like six minute sequence where they're traveling through the tunnel. I think that you might be being a little too literal when it comes to claustrophobic and claustrophobia. I know what sequences that you're talking about. You know, there's kind of where like Sarah's like stuck in the tunnel and it's like about to start collapsing. I think that's probably the moment that it's like, okay, that's the moment we commonly associate with the claustrophobia of the film. I actually feel like there are more moments that aren't that extreme that I still would consider claustrophobic moments. The scene where Holly had like fallen and broke her leg. I think that that sequence sort of leading up to her falling, I do feel like that is quite claustrophobic through there. Even when they're like trying to like help her and dress the wound and everything, I felt claustrophobia there while it's not to the same degree as what we see earlier with somebody basically stuck, how tight the framing is, how little space like everybody's given, it it sells this feeling of it. I think there's a distinction between knowing or intellectually understanding claustrophobia and feeling claustrophobia. And if I can use other people's experiences to demonstrate my point, I spent a lot of time on Reddit this last week trying to get a sense of how people feel about this film. And I would say 90% of the people who like this film have verbalized this feeling of like they can't breathe. They have an emotional reaction that results in a physical reaction. I only see one sequence that I get that sense. The rest of it is like a understanding of it. It's the same way we say when a film is shot in all close-ups and we say, oh, that film is, has this very claustrophobic feel because it's shot in all close-ups. That doesn't mean like I'm having 
a reaction to this. Like I feel like the walls around me are closing in, like I'm having a hard time breathing, I'm, I'm feeling dizzy, whatever. However anybody responds to that, it's just a way of expressing how sort of tight something feels, but it's not an emotional response. I was surprised that upon rewatch, I didn't feel that except for maybe that six minute sequence in which they're all and it's not just when Sarah gets stuck, although it's heightened when Sarah gets stuck, but it's when each character is crawling through that tunnel and the camera is right in their faces and it almost feels like there's no room even for a subconsciously you're thinking about there's no room for a camera or a cameraman there without even really thinking about it. You just kind of you, you get that sense. And then the way they slowly start to, especially when Sarah comes in, they move the camera down and they start to cut off the top of the tunnel. So then it's feeling like she's being squished and compressed even more. I think that's a very successful sequence. I think it's the most effective in the entire film. I did personally myself get a little bit like felt like a little bit sort of shortness of breath. I was having a reaction to that scene, but that's just the opposite of what I remember. So I thought it was interesting that if someone asked me a week ago, did you get this claustrophobic feeling from the descent? I would have said yes. And now watching it now, I would say during one six minute sequence in a hour and 40 minute movie or whatever. There is something that I think that the movie does well to kind of enhance its claustrophobic nature and feel in other parts, especially like later on. It's just how they continue to like black out the pit where a character would end up like dropping down into and it's just like that pure pitch blackness. It is kind of that sense of there is nothing there. It's like devoid of anything. I guess maybe it's not necessarily like claustrophobic. It is just that unsettling sense of there is nothing else there or around. And to me, that makes it a little bit more suffocating. Also, like another moment that I kind of want to call out, and it's the wide. And Sarah's kind of on this incline. It's when she's like climbing up towards the light and there's just like that one spot like coming down and it's black and you get Sarah and like some whiteness of of bones. That's like another one of those moments where I understand there's like all of this space, but I'm still feeling trapped within within all of that darkness. Moments even before they get to that tunnel, there are large sections of that in the cave where it is truly lit by like a headlamp or a flashlight here and there. And they're essentially wide shots, but you have the small little window of light. The remainder of the screen is black. I think that gives that same feeling. I mean, you're right. It is a, it's like, it's two things. It, it's sort of the darkness closing in on them and you don't know what's beyond that darkness. Also, additionally, knowing you're watching a horror movie, this sort of fear of what's hidden in that darkness, the suspense that comes from that. But yeah, I do, I do see you can describe that as claustrophobic. I just think it's, it's something that I understand in those moments and don't feel in those moments. That doesn't make them any less, I guess, effective. It's just a different thing. And I was expecting more of the emotional reaction than I actually got. And I mean, the shot you're talking about, I do think is maybe one of the most striking shots in the film. I think it's a beautiful shot. The sort of edge of the bones being lit as she's climbing up. I think it's an effective shot. I just don't get the 
I don't get maybe as much as you get, but but I like the shot. I didn't want there to be any like real gratuitous light sources in this in this caves. I mean, it's, it's proving a problem as we're filming it to suddenly think, well, how are we actually going to light this scene because they've only got you know a box of matches on them? So right, well, we we use a box of matches. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we use a box of matches. You had mentioned how certain scenes you could tell it, it looks like it's lit with just the headlamp. One thing that this film is frequently praised for is the lighting and the use of light. It's also criticized by people for being poorly lit. I think people need to understand that shots or scenes or films choosing to be devoid of light in certain areas doesn't necessarily equate to something being poorly lit. You can have all the light in the world. You can be blasting your subject where you can see everything, all five of their shadows, but that doesn't mean that that is lit well. They were particular about what they wanted to light and what they wanted to show versus keep in blacks and darkness is a conscious decision. It's an executed decision. The moments in which the film is lit by flashlights, lit by headlamps, even some moments of flares, I think that stuff is really effective. It's creating a feeling, a tone. We're talking about hiding stuff. We're talking about what is lurking in these shadows. We're talking about even creating a claustrophobic feel through that lighting. It's also just screams to me a director completely in control, showing you what he wants to show you hiding what he wants to hide. And then on a sort of experiential level, it's placing you in the situation with them. We're not experiencing anything outside of what they would experience. We see only what they see in terms of the light. So we're one of the people alongside them exploring this cave. And so when something happens to them, it happens to us. That works really well. There's a moment, I guess it's where the creatures start to show up, that I think they change what their strategy for lighting is. And and it's interesting because I don't necessarily understand it. There's moments where they return to it. I think of the moment where they've all been separated. Juno's on her own. She has a flashlight and she catches the arrows on the cave wall and it's all just moving the flashlight back and forth. And that's the only source of light. But they, at a certain point, introduce unmotivated lighting sources into these sequences. I can only assume it's because they want us to see the creatures interacting with the humans. We want to see that interaction. I just think it would be more effective if continued to hide stuff and reveal stuff at certain moments, because I think that would be uh, scarier. I think it would be more shocking in moments, like you could get jump scares out of that if you wanted. This film certainly loves to utilize jump scares. It just becomes less effective. I mean, it bothers me on a craft level, on a technical level, as someone who analyzes these things. But when it comes down to it, I just think it becomes less effective. I think it's more effective when it's controlling the light rather than artificially adding this ambience so that we can sort of see everything we need to see. I do want to pose a question to you surrounding this. I will acknowledge that this question comes from maybe flawed logic, but just tossing out an idea here. Does the change of lighting maybe reflect 
the character's ability to adapt and adjust. You spend enough time in the dark and eventually like your eyes adjust so that you're able to pick up more. You know, not not arguing that it's necessarily done well, but I do kind of question if certain decisions are made to kind of sell that a little bit. There certainly could be an argument made for that. One sort of idea to support your theory on this is that the moment where Sarah bursts through the ground at the end of the film into daylight, there's like that overexposed sky and then it sort of clamps down and adjusts. So it's like your eyes, you know, after being spending all this time in darkness, the way your eyes would react to this bright sunlight, very experiential moment and experiential decision. And that directly relates to what you're saying. But my question would be then, why is it so inconsistent? I mean, they shot this film in sequence, and then there's moments where it's really dark. By that, I mean it's lit by just a flashlight, a headlamp, a, a single maybe a flare or something. And then it comes to a, a different scene in the film, and then it's got, I can see rays of light coming from above, or you have just this ambient light. So why would it be so inconsistent if it is about adapting? You know, as those scenes change, we were changing characters as well. So there would logically be shifts in how one character is adjusting versus another. Not always, though. It may sound like I'm complaining that it's like these are continuity errors. I, that's not what bothers me. But there are scenes in which I think the one example is Juno and Beth. Juno's fight with the creature is lit a certain way, and then she turns and stabs Beth. And then as we cut to the close-ups and the rest of that scene, it gets noticeably darker. I was honestly reaching anyways. I honestly don't believe that's what it is or what was trying to be communicated. I'm just... Here's, here's the thing. If I'm being honest, I feel like the film is very committed to this idea of... And the idea of selling the practical lighting effects up until it's not up until it becomes the movie about trying to get out of the cave while avoiding creatures that are going to kill them. You've demonstrated what bothers me. If the whole film was lit in this artificial sort of like studio environment sort of way, I would like that less, certainly. But if it was at least consistent, I wouldn't be complaining. It's because it switches from one style of lighting to another style of lighting with no, for me, no noticeable motivation. I think the green sort of like glow stick is the worst culprit here. Yes. There's moments where the light in the scene is actually brighter than the glow stick itself on camera. Why would the light in the room be brighter than the source of the light? And it somehow curves around corners and because everything's sort of washed in this green, this green glow. Obviously, a single tube is not going to light things around corners. So it's clearly that they have lights coming from different directions, from different sources to light this stuff. And I think it just becomes more obvious when it's green, because I think we can accept a, a neutral white or even like a warm tungsten colored light and just sort of accept that as our eyes adapting to the darkness or like this is just natural ambient lighting. But then when it's green, it's like this is obviously coming from this singular source. 
So it sort of draws out these issues even more, makes them more obvious. I'm not going to argue the green light glow stick because that one I think is the ugliest. No pun intended. I, I feel like I can turn a blind eye to the torch lighting and like the heavy red, you know, the Sarah and and Juno lighting decisions. Because I, I do feel like it does change a little bit to be something a little bit more stylistic. But the green doesn't communicate anything. The green doesn't, I don't feel, enhance the look of anything. It really just feels, it feels unmotivated, honestly. I think the main reason for it is to distinguish characters, because after they get split up, I think there is this sort of theory that we need to make sure everybody knows who is who. I think that's the main reasoning behind it. I am for distinguishing and differentiating your characters, giving, you know, wardrobe color decisions to match like personalities or to, or to communicate things. I like that. I'm a believer in using that tactic. I think that logically you can do that with lighting as well. Now, why I have a problem with it here is we don't know anything about any of these people anyways. So why is it so it just Usu? <laughs> Well, yeah, I I mean it is one of those things where it doesn't and it shouldn't. Also in the commentary, they talked about how the red, some of that red light was created in the color grade and not used on set. And I thought that was maybe true about the green, the green light from the, the glow stick. But then I was watching some of the behind the scenes footage and I saw that they were using green light on set. So, But I was going to use that as an argument for why some of it maybe doesn't quite look right because it, it was artificially created through the grade but i'm not so sure that's true I'm, I'm a little unsure to what extent you know the stuff was happening on set versus changed or enhanced in post again i mean i i hinted at i like if a film is going to set up a scenario and set up rules essentially that we're as the film says two miles below the surface there is absolutely zero daylight, zero natural light. The only sources of light are the lights that we brought. The film says this specifically. If you're going to set that up, that's the world you create for your film. You need to commit to it. My, that's my theory. I, they don't commit. And also, I just feel like you're ultimately ruining possibilities for scares and feeling and suspense and mood and atmosphere by lighting it that way. Because I think the darkness is actually scarier. I'm going to make a bold statement here then. If your preference is, okay, I made this lighting decision and I'm going to stick to it, even if it is studio lighting and it's just kind of generic, maybe you would prefer The Descent too. Maybe I would. The second film is trying to do this, oh yeah, we're doing the headlamp thing too, but it's very clearly, okay, here's all this like studio lighting. It all looks just like very evenly lit. I wouldn't actually prefer it. It's just, I well, meant- you don't know. You haven't watched it yet. I'm just saying like the look, I wouldn't prefer that look. I know that. I'm just saying if that were the case, the lighting wouldn't be such a big talking point for me. I just would be like, oh yeah, that's generic lighting we wouldn't be talking about it for the last 20 minutes or whatever. I want to kind of end this piece on a, on a little bit more of a high note. I agree with what you said. I feel like there's decisions that are made that are abandoned or adjusted depending on, you know, if it's pre-creature or post-creature 
interaction. I love what is being attempted and the way that that first like half of the movie is lit. And it's probably even less than half, honestly. But the use of the headlamps, the selling of like would-be practicals, I think that all works really, really well for me. I do like some of the decisions that happen a little bit later um, and how the lighting does shift to something a little bit more stylized, especially when it comes to the flare versus the primal nature of Sarah's like torch that she she makes and just like that really kind of aggressive red. I feel like the hyper stylized lighting sells certain moments in a film like this. I think that they do just try to create certain cool moments. Absolutely. I think this film is really about creating cool moments. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I honestly just don't think the filmmaking is as strong as I would have liked to have seen in order to make those cool moments truly effective. Is it fair to say, though, this isn't a movie that was made for Justin anyways? No, I'm starting to wonder if any movies are made for me. No, that's not true. That's not true. You know that. No, I mean, that's probably true. 2010, 11, Justin, he was on board with it. He was younger and he had hope and life hasn't beaten the shit out of him yet. Yeah, I'm changed. I'm changed, man. We touched on the opening and I know you have some thoughts. This likely doesn't have anything to do with any of your thoughts or feedback, but I, I found it interesting when I was listening to the commentary where uh, Neil Marshall was talking about the the cold open and how putting the actors on the river raft resulted in a significant increase of their insurance premium for the production and I guess, you know, like looking at it and what's there, I had a moment where I was questioning like the value of that sequence. And while it's maybe not necessarily like incredibly dangerous in the reality of things, the way that Marshall kind of brought it up and talked about it in the commentary kind of alluded to it being a little bit more dangerous than maybe we needed a sequence like this to be to open the film. I just think it's interesting. There's lots of tight close-ups. It's handheld and it's cut so quickly that I just feel like it honestly, you number one, don't get a real sense of direction. It just kind of seems like they're just in this one spot kind of doing circles in a way. And it makes it just feel very artificial. Like if they had told me, like if I was listening to the commentary and they said all these close-ups were filmed in a pool with splashing water, I would have believed it. I just don't think it gives... Um, a real sense of movement or direction. It just feels like them kind of just sitting there and handheld camera moves, extreme close-ups, fast cutting, some water splashing up in the background, and that's it. And if that's what you get, like, is it worth the money? Is it worth putting your actors in whatever, you know, danger there really is there? I think it's always a question of, you know, when you ask your actors to do something potentially dangerous, is what you're going to get out of it worth it in the end in this case it just doesn't feel like it was worth it to me because i just don't feel like that feels i mean what you want to accomplish by putting your actors in a raft and sending them down a rapids is you want to get the sense that these actors are really doing this thing so it feels real but then what i see on screen it doesn't feel real so it didn't accomplish its goal and then you go, well, was it worth it? I think that the only thing that positioning it this way does is 
give a sense that these women are a little bit more adventurous. They have a degree of aptitude towards, you know, outdoor activities. So when it comes to like later, like spelunking, cave diving, it all becomes like, okay, I, I get it. It makes sense logically, but I don't know that you need it either. One, there were, would have been other ways to kind of show this. Why not have another cave set up where they're like coming out of that cave? So then we've already kind of connected them to the event that they're going to do later. This doesn't necessarily tell me much other than, yeah, okay, this is the kind of things that they do. I agree. I mean, I think probably it's to add some variation But I mean, if we're kind of breaking down this whole thing, I mean, this kind of leads into editing. But if your quick cutting during your rapid sequence is to, I assume, create this sense of chaos, this sense of energy, this sense of danger, potentially, then what justifies the quick cutting before they get to the rapids? This is where I'm going to talk about something I always talk about, this idea of contrast. Why not sort of have a slower rhythm to your sequence, and then when they get to the rapids, the dangerous moment, then that's when you increase the pace of the cutting. You introduce a change in the filmmaking, and then that'll sell the danger and the chaos of being on the raft with them in that moment. I just think that doesn't quite work. I think a perspective thing is kind of strange. There's a strange choice. I mean, Sarah's husband and daughter are watching from the side from the bank of the river and we establish them on one side of the river and then every time we cut to a wide shot of the raft going down the rapids it's shot from the opposite side of the river why not just shoot it all from one side so those wide shots take on the perspective of the two bystanders so you could have linked it to a perspective within the scene there's the moment then when Sarah pushes Juno into the water. As one does to their friends to show that they are friends. Absolutely. There's a series of shots and cuts that I just... Tell me if you can make sense of these. We have a wide shot. We have the husband and daughter in the foreground. In the background, we have them in the raft. Cut to a close-up profile of Beth. Maybe it's like a medium profile. As she sort of lunges forward with her paddle that lasts 12 frames counted then we cut to a wider shot for 12 frames as juno begins to fall into the water then we cut to a reverse angle juno continuing that action of falling into the water so really the issue is okay 12 frames um i think that's that's some pretty rapid editing there i don't necessarily know what justifies that cutting but also why do we need three shots of the same action I really get a a sense that this whole sequence was shot and then sort of approached with, we'll figure it out in post kind of thing. Because there's a moment where they're on land and Sarah runs to her daughter. Her husband, Paul, is helping Juno out of the water and Beth is like tying up the raft. We get a shot of Beth looking at Juno and the husband. And she kind of gives this little expression like, this is weird, something's going on there. And then we cut to Paul and Juno in like over the shoulders, a completely different perspective. So we have Beth's reaction. The obvious next shot would be the POV to what she's looking at. But we 
cover that in a completely different angle that breaks that perspective, which seems weird to me. But then there's the moment where the family's about to leave and Sarah's about to say goodbye to them. And then Beth says, no, you go on ahead. We can finish up here. It's okay, you go on. We can finish up here. You sure? Thanks, guys. I'll see you at the hotel, yeah? But Beth is looking in the exact same direction that she was looking at Juno and Paul. So the eye lines don't match up. It just feels like a sequence that was covered in a bunch of different angles and then sort of figured out in post to me. And maybe they're borrowing pieces from here and there to kind of make it work. But it doesn't feel like there's a a strong sense of direction behind it. And I think that we just solved an earlier issue. Paul and uh, Jessica, the daughter, die in this car accident when Sarah's not there because she stayed behind. Well, yeah, I mean, it could be that easy. There we go. It's never worked for me on a bigger scope than, okay, we understand that something is going on between the husband and Juno. Beth gets a sense of it. Sarah is either turning a blind eye to it or just ignorant to it. I mean, I just, I think there are story elements that don't work here. We've previously discussed those, and I didn't do my best job explaining my technical issues with the scene. Really, what I'm trying to say is I think the scene is really poorly directed as well. There are moments of good direction in the film, so I'm not saying like this whole film is poorly directed, but people who say, you know, what happened to Neil Marshall? You know, Neil Marshall used to make these classic films and what happened to him in his later career. I would just say he's always shown signs of sloppy direction. It might not be a whole film, but this right here is an example of it showing up in in one of the films that is considered one of his best. Joe, was there any supplemental material for this film that you'd want to highlight? I mentioned I did listen to the commentary track. There were two commentary tracks. I only had the opportunity to listen to the director and crew commentary. I, I do think that there are some pieces that he talks about that may be helpful for would-be directors or directors that maybe are just getting kind of started out. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of what he had to say or the fundamentals, but I do think that some might find value to that commentary. The thing I would recommend from the Blu-ray, if you have the Blu-ray, this is a distinction from the DVD, is there's the Descent in Underground Experience, which is their picture-in-picture feature. That's something that I, I don't think was ever really used to its fullest potential and, and sort of died very quickly for Blu-ray. But it's actually kind of interesting here, showing you behind-the-scenes stuff as the film plays. You can directly reference what they're doing to shoot with the final result. And then the Descent Beneath the Scenes documentary, those two in combination, I think, are more insightful than the commentaries, personally. The documentary, those things are always too interview focused for me. I prefer the sort of fly on the wall experience, just kind of watching how they shoot things and what it's like to be on set. There's still some of that in there. I think those two together, you kind of see how they photographed like the tunnels. You can kind of get a sense of what the sets looked like. And there's pre-production meetings and things that are on there. I think that's all good stuff if you like the film and you kind of want to see how it was made, or if you're just interested in horror filmmaking in general, I think that stuff's worth checking out. Joe, I know I was 
fairly negative on this episode and I maybe dominated the conversation with my negative thoughts on the film. You had, at the top of the episode, talked about how this is a film that you can just enjoy for what it is. You still enjoy it after many viewings. Can you maybe give some of your final thoughts, but also share what it is about this film that you know makes it so enjoyable for you? I hate to, to break it to you and our listeners, but after this discussion, <laughs> I actually hate this movie. <laughs> Everything about it is terrible. Okay, mission accomplished. No, but seriously, what? Okay, you had mentioned earlier that you felt like the claustrophobia thing didn't work as well after repeat viewings, which is understandable. But like, then what is it necessarily that you get out of this film? This is a movie that I can set aside my perspective as a filmmaker. I'm really easily able to compartmentalize that when watching this movie in particular. It comes down to some of the what I would constitute as brave decisions that were made when actually making this movie. You you set out and made a different type of horror movie than what was sort of like popular and conventional at the time. You you highlighted that at the top of the episode. Now I'll acknowledge that this film isn't inherently unique in some of the things that it, it does, but for its time, I, I think it, it was trying to do something different. So that's number one. Number two, I do find it, and I've always found it really interesting, the lighting decisions very early on. I really like that. It actually had inspired me. I had a script written. I wanted to only use practical lights, have a use of flashlights. I found inspiration in that because this film sells that effect when it commits to it as good, if maybe not better than a lot of other examples of it. The th third thing is the environments. I talked about what worked for me with It Comes at Night, and that's like that isolation and the environment that that is set in. There's kind of like that isolation out in the woods. This brings in isolation in a claustrophobic environment. Now, things that I've highlighted are honestly like first half of the movie things. I think there are worse versions of this. I think that there are films that do this way worse. I don't love that the film really does switch gears the way it does, but I just accept it because now it is that stalker creature pseudo monster movie i'm okay with it because i've just been able to accept the fact that now the movie has shifted and changed into something different i know that this holds very little weight based off of what we do with this podcast we break down we analyze films we we talk about the story uh elements the script we talk about technical items honestly I still just have fun with this movie. What is that? What's fun? Yeah, exactly. So I, I just, I still have fun with it. I'm able to, to just sit down, enjoy it, turn off a part of my brain, and just accept, hey, this is what this movie is. I don't think I really highlighted the things that I think work as well as I maybe could have. I think the first tunnel sequence is very effective. The use of camera, the use of framing, 
the performances in those moments make those really effective. And I do actually get an emotional response out of that sequence. Even some of the stuff in the cabin, I think, is sort of fun and, and effective in what it's trying to accomplish. My major issue is sort of the turn in the second half. And what it comes down to for me is the filmmakers had something that was working so well, particularly the lighting, the sort of slow build to something, hints at the creatures, keeping it very subtle, showing only pieces of it, hiding a lot of it. All that stuff is working really well. You had something that was working really well, and you abandoned it for something that I don't think is as effective. And it really feels like a director in control, and then a film that's sort of getting away from the director a little bit. It's just a feeling I have. You know, sort of my takeaways from this, I would say that if it made sense to you to light the film the way you light it at the beginning of the film, in this case I'm using the lighting as just an example, this can apply to any element of your film in general. If you could justify that decision in the beginning, that means it meant something, there was reason behind it. I would say just sort of stick with that, commit to the the concepts, the ideas, the, the situations that you've set up and established. So yeah, that's my takeaway is to just sort of commit to those things. And that's a brave decision. I mean, in the commentary, there's a lot of discussion about audience reaction and test audiences and how that can alter a film. I mean, especially if you're, you're working in a studio situation. Also, like you said, and you, you praised sort of the brave decisions, I think you need to be continuously brave or be even more brave to stick with it and not let sort of those those things sort of affect the decisions you're making unless those decisions are right for the film clearly we we talked about the things that we would have kind of liked to have seen happen to kind of enhance the characters and i do wonder if some of these issues that you have with it are maybe a little bit more easily forgiven by you if we had some of those character moments where we were actually able to spend a little bit of time with Sarah, you know, slowed things down a little bit or spent a little bit of time knowing and understanding how she's reacting to her trauma than just being a product of. Yeah. I mean, I can forgive technical issues or what I'm deeming technical issues if the script is working really well if I am liking sort of what they're doing with the story if I'm emotionally invested in the story and the characters also I can forgive certain story issues if there's a certain level of pure cinema craft on display but I didn't get enough of either of those two things to forgive the issues I saw in this case He sets a great example, showing people that you don't have to shout or be forceful in order to get the work done. Because, you know, it's, it's, it, some of the scenes are really quite horrific and you've got to, to make them believable, you've actually got to be experiencing these emotions. And he's been really patient and um, always given us space. Encourages coming to set with an open mind about things, even in terms of the dialogue. And sometimes I find that frustrating. Um, 
in other situations I find it frustrating when you get new lines on the day or why don't we try it completely different to how it's written. But in this experience it's been really enlightening actually. The whole film is a, very much a homage, a tribute to film, the horror films I grew up with in the 70s and 80s, and I loved the endings of films like The Thing, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, which is it's just so unremittingly bleak and leaves very little in the way of hope. The characters aren't dead, but there's not much in the way of optimism there, and um, I just wanted to achieve that, that kind of thing. I guess, Justin, that uh, kind of brings us mercifully to the end of our two-month run of horror and horror-adjacent films. Uh, so now that we've been complete bummers for four straight episodes... I'll admit, September, October did not go the way I had planned. I didn't intentionally pick things, and I know you didn't intentionally pick things, that either one of us would dislike it was not the goal i still like the movies that i picked yeah that's true you like one of the movies you picked i do two movies i had seen previously and i'm like yeah those are good movies this is going to be fun to discuss and then i i just didn't like them so i could not have anticipated that as much as i was eager for this september october to come so we could discuss these I'm also eager now for this to be over so we can <laughs> discuss something else. Uh, my pick for the next episode, I have to admit, is somewhat inspired by your pick, Joe. You picked first. And I was like, oh, you know what might be an interesting companion to that is this film. So I have picked Hirokazu Koreeda's Afterlife from 1998. So we'll reveal next time what Joe's pick was and how that corresponds. But um, this is a film I've actually never seen before, Joe. So have you seen it? I have not. Although I will say uh, Corey has been a director that has started to fill up my watch list on Letterboxd a little bit more. Um, I was a huge fan of Shoplifters when that came out. That was actually my favorite film of that year. I had every intention of seeing Broker, but just never played close enough, and I've been meaning to get around to that one. I actually picked up this Blu-ray during a recent Criterion sale, and I've been looking forward to this one. So, both of us, first time watching. Yes. And I just want to make sure that uh, there's there's no confusion. We are not watching Faz Lu's After Dot Life, starring Liam Neeson and Christina Ricci. Although, maybe that's Joe's pick for the following episode, and that's why I picked this. You'll have to wait and see. It's not. But it could be. But it, but it's not. Really excited for Corey Ada. 
Great pick, Justin. Thank you for listening to our discussion of Neil Marshall's The Descent. We want you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with someone who might enjoy it. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson, and Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebvre83. Links will be in the description. And join us next time for our discussion of Hirokazu Koryeda's afterlife you don't have to look at the set anymore i mean the movie's over your movie was over that's what you said there's nothing going on uh, in movies right now great movie huh so refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies have you seen a lot of movies here what are you so crazy about movies for obviously they don't watch enough movies that's part of your problem you know you haven't seen enough movies all of life's riddles are answered in the movies do you have any experience in motion pictures quite a bit of experience i'm uh active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know oh. No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Cut and cut! That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.